Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. Here in Colossians 3, it's, it's a lot of the practical stuff. And we're talking about um, the practical side of our Christian life, what we should be doing, how we should be doing it. Paul, the way that he always does his letters is he builds all this stuff by presenting Christ. He builds all of the theology. And then he says, okay, now that you know who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, let's apply it to our life and start living that way. And so that's the practical side is what we've been looking at here um, of things that we should be putting off from our former manner of life, characteristics we should be putting on. Uh, He commands these things we're supposed to be doing because not only are these commands inspired by the Holy Spirit, but we find they are rooted essentially in the Word of God. And I cannot stress how important the Word of God is for the Christian, and you'll see that here in uh, verse number 16 that we're going to be looking at and spending some more time on this morning. Uh, You know, we should always follow what God's Word says And if you know Christ, then God's word really should be the one that directs every aspect of your life. It should control every thought, your deed, every action. Everything that you do uh, should be directed through what God's word does and says that you should be doing. You know, unlike us, I think the believers in the early church placed a, a very high priority on the word of God. Uh, we, we see this in Acts chapter 2, verse 41 through 42. It tells us that they, the uh, believers there, uh, so then they who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so they were continually devoting themselves uh, in other words, they were uh, earnest uh, towards that. They, they constantly sought out what uh, the apostles' teaching was. Uh, they diligently observed uh, two things that we see from that, the apostles' doctrine, which the New Testament scripture, and fellowship, which consisted of breaking of bread and prayer. So let's read here verse number 16 in Colossians 3, and uh, let's read it here together. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul is essentially telling these believers the importance of God's word and the results that come from that. So this is what I'd like for you to take away with you this morning. Live a life devoted to God's Word that will result in a Spirit-filled life of worship to God. Live a life devoted to God's Word that will result in a Spirit-filled life of worship to God. So let's take note of a couple things here. Number one, how to allow the Word of Christ to dwell in you. 
So let's break down this verse in order to understand its meaning and how we are to allow the word dwell in us. Notice Paul's command here. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Take note of that phrase there, the word of Christ. What does that mean? Does that mean we only follow the red letters of the Bible? I had a person I was talking to one time, and they said, I'm just one of those red-letter Christians. I just, I just follow the, whatever Jesus said to do. Just those red letters, that's it. And I said, well, that's, that's good. And, you know, I was trying to show him some other things out of Scripture. He's like, well, I'm not really, I'm really not too familiar with, with those other things. And I said, well, you know, Jesus actually believed the whole Bible, right? Like, he, he believed what Moses had to say. He believed what the Psalms had to say. He believed what the prophets had to say. So we, we don't just follow just certain parts of the Bible, right? We should follow the entirety of Scripture. And so when we talk about letting the word of Christ, this can either be subjective, the word delivered by Christ, or it can be objective, the word about Christ. And I believe it should be both, Okay. Um, I think we can take it both ways. We should let the word delivered by Christ and the word about Christ richly dwell in us. Now, this is actually a very interesting phrase because it's only found here and also one other time uh, in the New Testament, Romans 10, 17. It says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. However, we do find the phrase, the word of the Lord, uh, it's found in 1 Thessalonians 1.8, also 1 Thessalonians 4.15, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.1. In other places in the New Testament, we find the phrase, the word of God. There are several instances of that. And let me give you some helpful advice when, when you're studying God's word. Ask questions. So when you come to a phrase like this, uh, why did Paul write the word of Christ and not just the word of the Lord or God's word? Or why did he specifically say the word of Christ? Uh, because it's only found those two times uh, there in the New Testament. Well, we come to understand why Paul wrote what he wrote, primarily because what was going on in uh, the church at Colossae? Can you remember? Like, here is this church, and Paul spends all that time in chapter 1, about exalting Christ, lifting up Christ, magnifying Christ. He's trying to get their attention and focus on Jesus. Set your mind on things above, where Christ is, right? Seated at the right hand of the Father. Um, he's trying to allow them to see Christ clearly through all the stuff that was going on uh, in that church. And so he's trying to get them to remember, hey, look, let the word of Christ dwell in you. And he wants it to be magnified and exalted. If you can remember, the false teachers had come into this church and they were trying to promote their man-made traditions in order to have a better relationship with God, right? And uh, what did Paul say about that stuff in uh, Colossians 2.8? He says, they do have an appearance of wisdom, right? But they don't really accomplish anything. And so he's trying to get their minds on Christ. Um, God's word always magnifies Jesus Christ, always. 
It was not the word of false teachers that brought salvation to the Colossians. It was the word of God, the truth of the gospel, as what Paul wrote in Colossians 1, uh, 5, as he says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before the word of the truth, the gospel. The same word gives us life and sustains and it strengthens us. Listen to what Peter uh, wrote about this in uh, 1 Peter chapter uh, 1, verses 22, all the way through uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 3. He says this concerning the word. He says, Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The glass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so Peter puts a, a tremendous emphasis and stress about how important the word of God is because it is that pure, sincere milk of the word that you grow thereby. He wants us to have the whole milk, right? Not that 2% stuff. Okay? He says, give me the whole milk of the word. I don't want that, you know, pink top 2% stuff. Okay? I, I don't want the watered down stuff. Okay? I want the whole milk of it. So now that we know what the word of Christ is, okay, the word of the Lord, God's word, let's look at what the second part of the command is. Paul tells the Colossians that they are to let the word of Christ, notice this, dwell in you richly. Now take note of that word, dwell. It means to live in or to be at home. But what's interesting about this word is that it's used in what is called the present active imperative. You say, well, what does that mean? It means these are commands that are expected to be followed not once, but as an ongoing process. It's kind of like you go to the doctor and uh, you know you got some ailments going on, and the doctor says, well you got to stop eating all of that fried food. That's the order. Stop eating fried food. You go, oh, okay. I guess he just meant that just for that day. I think he just told me to just try it out for a week. And if it, you know, we'll see. No, he says stop doing it, right? So, Paul here is commanding, he's saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, an ongoing process. You never stop. You continually allow the word of Christ to dwell in you richly. 
You might be thinking, well, Mike, you know what? I've been a Christian a long time. I've heard all the Bible stories. I grew up in church. Man, I was in the cradle ministry. I, I mean, from day one, I was in church. And I've been a Christian for so many years. Let the word of Christ continually dwell in you richly. You don't stop. You continue to allow it to happen more and more and more and more. So let's put this together. Paul calls on the believers in this church and to us as well to let the word take up residence and be at home in our lives. This is not just a suggestion or some practical advice that would help you, but we are expected to follow this command and continue to do so. Let's try to get a good understanding about what dwell means. And here's a good secret to you uh, when you do your own personal study of God's Word. Whenever you come across the Word that you are looking up, you can really get a good working definition of how that Word is used in the Bible when you look up other verses that use the same exact words. And this will help us understand this. This word dwell is actually used five times in the New Testament. Let's look at how it's used so we can better get, a, get, a, uh, get a better understanding of what this is. So here they are, Romans 8.11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. So the Holy Spirit here indwells believers, and the same word that Paul is using here about the word of Christ dwelling in you. And so just as the Holy Spirit indwells believers, the word of Christ is to indwell us in the same manner. Here's another one, 2 Corinthians 6.16. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So here we see that God dwells with all believers, and his word is to dwell with us. Here's another one. 2 Timothy 1.5, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois, in your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. So the Christian life here, this Christian faith was dwelling in Timothy's mother and grandmother, and because of their influence in Timothy's life, Timothy became a Christian, and it's that same faith that was in his mother and his grandmother that now was indwelling and dwelt in Timothy. Here's another one, 2 Timothy 1.14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And so again, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in the believers. So what we gather from these verses, the word dwell is seen of God dwelling in believers, faith and dwelling in believers, and the word of God dwelling in in believers. As I said, the word dwell literally means to keep house. We should live in the Word of God like we live in our homes. We are familiar with our home, where all the closets are, where everything gets put. 
Now, I'm a guy, and I sometimes have a hard time with this. Like, maybe I'll be, like, helping my wife wash the dishes and stuff. And, you know, there's those, like, one items that you only use, like, once a month. And without fail, I'm like, where does this go? And she's like, we've been over this several times. And, like, now I'm starting to go, like, I don't remember that. You know where it goes. And then, like, I start approaching over to a cabinet. That's not where that goes. <laughs> I don't know, right? And then she shows me, and I go, that's not where that used to go. It used to go over here. Well, I changed it. Oh, well, that really doesn't help me much, right? So we should know God's word, and the word of God should be dwelling and living in us so much that we're so familiar with it. We must be thoroughly acquaint ourselves with the Word. The Word should become so familiar to us that we know it like we, own, like we know our own homes. The idea is to let the Word of God dwell inside and live at home in our lives. The Word of God needs to inhabit us. This is more than just reading the Bible. Let's dig a little more. Paul adds that the Word is not only to dwell in us, but notice this, to richly dwell in us. The word richly is another infrequent word occurring just four times in the New Testament. Richly has a really a twofold meaning of quantity and degree. It means abundantly applying it and using it in all its teaching, but also using it constantly at all times and in all circumstances. Let's look how this word richly is used here. So he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 1 Timothy 6.17 Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Titus 3.6, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. 2 Peter 1.11, for in the same way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly, it's the same word, richly, abundantly supplied to you. So what do we learn from this? Well, these three uses of this word all talk about how God richly blesses believers in Jesus Christ. And so if you know Christ, you are richly blessed in Jesus. So we could say that we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us the same way in which God blesses us abundantly or extravagantly. The truths of Scripture should permeate every aspect of the believer's life and govern every thought, word, and deed. And so God's Word is to abundantly dwell in us. Does God's Word abundantly dwell in you? Or is it just take it or leave it? When I need it, I do have it. When I don't, eh, you know, I really don't need it. Does God's word abundantly dwell in you? Listen to what Spurgeon wrote about letting the word of Christ dwell in you. 
He says, if other forms of knowledge are useful, they are like the planets. But the knowledge of God, as revealed in Jesus Christ, is as the sun. Let this always be the center of your system of knowledge and let all the rest that you know move in subordination and subjection to that first and best form of knowledge. If you find a professing Christian indifferent to his Bible, you may be sure that the very dust upon its cover will rise up in judgment against him. My dear friends, I should like you so to read the Bible that everybody in the Bible should seem to be a friend of yours. I should like you to feel as if you had talked with Abraham and conversed with David. I can truly say that there is hardly anybody in the world that I know so well as I know David. But do find your choicest friends in Scripture. Take the whole company of the Bible saints home to your heart. Let them live inside your soul. Let old Noah come in with his ark if he likes. And let Daniel come in with his lion's den if he pleases. And all the rest of the godly men and women of the olden time. Take them all into your very nature and be on familiar terms with them. But most of all, be specially intimate with him of whom they all speak. Namely, Jesus Christ, your blessed Lord and Master. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Not among you, but within you. Is it? I want, to see, want you to show you something here about this text that is very important. You're here in Colossians. Now keep your place here, but turn with me over to the book of Ephesians. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter number 5. And we're about to hit pay dirt here, okay? Ephesians 5.18, look what he says here. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Paul tells the Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit. Then notice what he says in the verses following this, okay? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord within your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, if we go back over to Colossians, okay, flip back over to Colossians there. Paul tells the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Then he says this. Notice as he continues, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Was Paul having an episode here and he kind of forgot what he was saying? Mm -mm. These are Holy Spirit-inspired words. And Paul is trying to tell us something about this. Colossians tells us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And Ephesians tells us to be filled with the Spirit. These commands are identical. 
because the passages that follow each other are the same. The result of being filled with the Holy Spirit is the same as the result of letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So therefore, the two are the same spiritual reality viewed from the two sides. And so to be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled by His Word. How will we know if somebody is Spirit-filled? Because they jump up and down and shout, Woo-hoo! I'm Spirit-filled! Is that Spirit-filled? How will we know if somebody is Spirit-filled? They're in the Word. The Word of God is what directs their lives. You see the connection there? Okay. In other words, the word-filled Christian is a spirit-filled Christian. So are you a spirit-filled Christian? I didn't ask you if you were emotional. I'm asking you, are you a spirit-filled Christian? In other words, are you a word-filled Christian? Does the word of Christ dwell in you richly? So if you are not a word-filled Christian, if the word of Christ is not dwelling in you richly, are you spirit-filled? No. Those two are connected so closely. And so, we need to be a spirit-filled church. And if we're going to want to be a spirit-filled church, what does that mean we have to do? We have to be a word-filled church. Okay? When Paul says be filled with the Spirit, he's giving a command. The word filled means controlled. Believers who have the, same, have the Spirit are commanded to be controlled by Him. So the question is, how are we controlled by the Spirit? The Spirit's control is not this automatic mechanical control. The Spirit's control is brought about by means. The verse that uh, Paul uses there in Ephesians is he says, do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess. A person who is drunk is controlled by what? Wine. Alcohol, right? So a person who's controlled by the Spirit, there's a means of allowing that person to be controlled by the Spirit. And that is the means is through the Word of God. And so if we are filling ourselves with the Word... The result of that is that we are going to be a spirit-controlled individual, spirit-filled individual. And so we must take possession of the divine strength that he has made available to us in Christ. We appropriate the controlling grace of the spirit through the means of letting the word of Christ to dwell richly in us. Believers, we need more than a casual acquaintance with the Bible. God's word is to dwell in us abundantly. It is to saturate us. It must become part of our very being, transforming the way we think and act. So that's how we allow the word of Christ to dwell in us. Let's look at the second thing. The result of letting the word of Christ dwell in you is spirit-filled worship. Let's look at the rest of verse 16 here. So he tells us to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another 
in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, Paul mentions two specific results of the word of Christ here, okay, abundantly dwelling in the believer. One is positive and one is negative. Do you see it there? Teaching. Which one do you think that one is? Positive and admonishing. That's the negative, okay? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So teaching is the uh, impartation of positive truth. Admonishing is the negative side of teaching. Both are the result of a life overflowing with the word of Christ that is indwelling us, okay? You have to have both. You can't just have all positive and no negative, nor can you have just negative but no positive, okay? You need to have both teaching and admonishing both, right? There has to be a balance. Actually, if you notice in Paul's letters, uh, they're usually outlined that way, right? Like he talks about who Christ is, what Christ has done, how Christ has changed their life. And then he goes over there and he says, stop acting this way. By the way, Timothy says hi. <laughs> That's what he does. Okay? He gives the both. He gives both the balance of that as he tells and speaks to the churches. Okay? So you have to have the balance. To do this, our individual intake of the word should spill over so that whether on Sunday or during the week, the word of Christ permeates the life of the church. Now, what is interesting here is how this teaching and admonishing are to be done. Okay, we see that phrase, in all wisdom. Now, a lot of Bible scholars, they bicker back and forth of how this is supposed to, to fall in there. Uh, the original text did not have any punctuation. Okay? So how this, how this actually reads may read a little bit different in your translation. Okay? Uh, you can punctuate it so that the sense is that we use the word of Christ to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, making the rest of the sentence singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, that's how the NIV and the ESV uh, read. Or the sense may be that as the word of Christ richly dwells in us, we teach and admonish one another through our singing. That's how the NASB reads. Grammatically, it's, it's kind of hard to uh, figure out exactly uh, which one it is. But practically, I think that there is truth in, in both of these. The importance is that whether we are speaking or singing, we need to be teaching solid biblical truth. Teach here refers to communicating doctrine or biblical precepts. Admonish means to give correction or warning. Wisdom refers to skill in applying God's truth in specific situations. So whether it's from the pulpit, in a home fellowship, a small group Bible study, or a private uh, conversation that you're having with somebody, all right? Whether through speaking or through singing, the word of Christ must be at home in us so that we are wisely applying it both personally and with others. This means that biblical truth is really the essential for worship. The goal of theology should be doxology or worship. 
Jesus told the woman at the well that God is seeking those who worship him in what? Spirit and in truth. You have to have both. You can't just have spirit and you can't just have truth, right? In order for there to be true biblical worship, there has to be both spirit and truth, okay? And they work together. So you cannot worship God in truth unless you know who he is as revealed in his words. And if you worship a God who is loving and that overlooks sin, you're not worshiping the true God, but rather an idol that you have made up because the God of the Bible is both loving and holy. True worship rests on knowing God truly is revealed in his word. Without God's revealed truth, all the emotion in the world is misdirected and futile. You have to have both. So if we desire true spiritual worship, it begins by engaging our minds with the word of Christ. And while the word of Christ enables us to worship God in truth, singing allows us to worship him in spirit. So to worship rightly, we must know God is revealed in his word of truth. And if that truth doesn't move our hearts, something is wrong. The uh, church that we actually came from, came out of, it, it was kind of interesting because, uh, you know, when there would be times of worship and things like that, especially, you know, we would have the worship of the word as we were coming to the word of God. Um, and a lot of guys, they like had these little hobby horses that they like to talk about. And it was, it was rather interesting because you'd have somebody get up and they'd want to talk about you know, something really goofy, you know, and it's like, these guys would be like, you know, and swinging from the chandeliers and all kinds of crazy stuff, right? Um, But then you'd have a guy come up and he'd want to talk about Christ and the, the holiness of Christ and who Jesus is, and it was like, chirp, 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 there's something wrong there, right? We need to be moved by who Jesus is as he's revealed in the word, okay? And that out of that outflow should come praise and singing to our God, true worship. Singing is one way to express our love for God and gratitude for what he's done for us in Christ. So what are these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that he makes mention of here. Well, Psalms were taken from the Old Testament Psalter, the book of Psalms. They sang Psalms put to music, much as we do today. Uh, there is, there's some great uh, Psalms that people are doing today, uh, a group called uh, Shane and Shane, a um, lot, of, lot of great music uh, that's coming from out, from out of that. Uh, also, uh, some music from Sovereign Grace is really good that uses a lot of Psalms put to music, okay? Um, but in the church, that was their songbook, was the Psalms. That's, the, that's how they sang their praise and worship to God was through the Psalms. Um, even some of the things in the New Testament, uh, such as Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and also Philippians 2, 6 through 11, uh, were considered hymns that they sang in the early church, talking about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Uh, they, they sang those things to God. Um, spiritual songs emphasize testimony. 
They express in a song what God has done for us. Uh, something that, you know, like I think of like Moses' song, right? When he's coming out of the, uh, the thing there and he sings a praise to God, that's, that's kind of like a spiritual song. These psalms and hymns and spiritual songs were to be regarded as a method of teaching and admonishing. Now, that being the case, it should be obvious that our music must be doctrinally sound. According to this verse, music is a teaching tool, so it's indispensable in order to preserve the truth that the music of a church must be doctrinally correct. Now, I will say, you know, there's a lot of great hymns of the past that are very, very good and solid in their doctrine and their teaching. But there's also a lot of hymns from the past that uh, just because they're a hymn, they don't teach good doctrine, and I don't think they should be used. And just like today, there's a lot of newer hymns that have been written that are really good and solid in their doctrine, and there's a lot of newer hymns today that don't have good doctrine, and they're just trash, okay? So we have, to, we have to understand that just because something's old doesn't mean that it's good, right? Because something's new doesn't mean that it's bad, right? Because you can have bad with the old, and you can have bad with the new, right? The determining factor is, what is this song teaching, and is it doctrinally correct, about who Jesus is and who God is and what uh, God does. So we need to make sure that whatever we are singing in the church, that it's doctrinally sound and accurate. Uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, who was closely related to Johann Sebastian Front, um, said the aim of all music, the aim of all music is the glory of God. So for God to be glorified by our music, the words must be doctrinally correct. Warren Wiersbe, a Bible teacher, writes concerning this verse, there is, according to Paul, a definite relationship between our knowledge of the Bible and our expression of worship and song. One way we teach and encourage ourselves and others is through the singing of the Word of God. But if we do not know the Bible and understand it, we cannot honestly sing it from our hearts. So does your worship reflect your time spent in the Word? Or are you relying upon somebody else for your worship? You see, God wants us to worship Him all the time. Abundantly, right? The Word of Christ to dwell in you richly. Worship doesn't just happen on a Sunday. Oh, the family gathers here on Sunday and we worship collectively. But worship should be happening all the time. And men, fathers, you are to be the worship leader in your home. That means you are leading your family in the Word. That means you are directing them and showing them and pointing them to Christ. And you are worshiping together as a family. It should be happening all the time not just on Sunday. Does our worship reflect our time spent in the words? So let's wrap this up. Paul goes on to say, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Singing is to be done with thankfulness in your hearts to God. With thankfulness is literally in the grace or in His grace. 
So it may mean that the songs we sing should make us mindful of God's grace to us in Christ. And of course, when we think of God's abundant grace, it causes us to be thankful. Also, singing is to be done in our hearts. God always looks on our hearts, not our outward performance. That's one of the problems that he had with uh, his own children, the, the children of Israel. They were doing all the worship stuff. Man, they had the, they had the fire cranking and they were offering up sacrifice. Boy, they had the, the choir singing and boy, they were offering up praises. And God says, I just want you to shut the doors of the temple. I'm so sick of your sacrifice. I'm so sick of your music. I want to put my fingers in my ears. Why? Because their hearts were not in it. It was just all outward performance. So God is always looking at our hearts. Does our heart really reflect true worship to God? It can and it will if we are dwelling in the word of Christ, allowing the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. You know, I love it when I can hear others singing. It encourages me. And so when you sing, sing with your whole heart here, you know? Don't just be like... Sing with your whole heart. Lift up praise to God. And it encourages one another, edifies one another, because what are we doing? We're teaching and we're admonishing through our singing. Psalms 101 through 2 says, Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. And as we sing songs that reflect God's person and work, we are brought into his presence through our songs. When Paul and Silas were beaten and, and imprisoned in Philippi for preaching the word of Christ, how did they respond? Let me read to you Acts 16, uh, 23 through 25. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. If this was us, would we be praying, God, why did you let this happen to me? Or God, why don't you do something? Or God, judge these pagans for their sin? They weren't. They were praying in they were praying to God. They were praying and singing. How could they be singing at a time like this? What could they possibly sing about? I think it's evident that the word of Christ was abundantly dwelling in them, richly. And their lives were as a result of that, the, what they were doing and how they were responding to the situation. They were singing praises to God in all of that. And with that, because they sang those hymns to God, even in the most uncontrollable, hard circumstances and difficulties of life, they were being thankful to God. You see, their thankfulness did not come as a result of what was going on around them. Their thankfulness came as a result of what was in them. So never let your circumstances dictate your thankfulness to God or your worship to God. Because Christ is the one that dwells in us. 
And if his word is richly indwelling us, we can always praise him and we can always be thankful. And so he says, do this with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Is your life a life of spirit-filled worship? Church, are we modeling to others a spirit-filled life because we are filled with the word of God? Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.